Good evening and welcome again. I want to thank you all for your hospitality and for your faithfulness this week. I've enjoyed coming into your community and getting to know you all a little bit better. And I trust you will continue to be a blessing to the community around you. I also want to thank you for the many gifts that were in our van when we went to leave this morning. My, if it was up to my boys, they would have had them all opened. We went to Mark's for lunch, and they would have had them all opened and see what everything is by the time we got there. But we decided we'll wait till we're all home. So thank you very much for your generosity and hospitality. I've enjoyed being here with you. When you leave here to go home tonight, there's one thing I want sure in your minds. I want it to be crystal clear in your minds that you know and understand that Jesus is coming again. We don't know when it is, but it will happen. And I want that crystal clear in your minds before you leave tonight. Acts 1 says, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. 1 Thessalonians 4:18. Wherefore, comfort ye one another with these words. When you think of the Lord returning, is that a comfort to you? This evening there are three types of people. And you fall into one of these three categories. One is those who have accepted Christ and are living a victorious Christian life. Category number two is those who are living passive Christian lives, which is debatable if that's a category. Category number three is those who have not accepted Christ as their Savior. And this message tonight will mean something different to each one of those groups. To the one who has accepted Christ, it is a comfort. We can comfort one another with these words. There's a sense of excitement and longing because we know. We know what's, what's going to happen. When, when Jesus returns... We know what eternity holds for us, and we are looking forward to that. For the passive Christian, the second coming of Jesus is something to be ignored and pushed to the back burner. For those who have not accepted Christ, the thought of Jesus returning is a dreadful thought. It's something we dread. There are three categories, but there are only two perspectives to look at it from. And that's the excitement, the eagerness that we can look forward to Jesus coming to take us home. 
or dread, knowing that there will be a judgment coming, and in that judgment there are no excuses and there are no appeals. It is an indiscriminate judgment. Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Every eye shall see him. No one is exempt from the second coming of Jesus. For those who are prepared, it's joy and anticipation, knowing that we've been faithful, that we've fought a good fight, and we are going home to be with our Savior. Maybe some of you dads can relate to this story. One night I was going to be late coming home from work. With my job, I can be fairly consistent in when I can be home. I'm usually home around 5.30. But I was going to be about a half hour late one night, so I called home and I told my wife, I said, I'm going to be about a half an hour late tonight. And she said, well, you better hurry. She said, there are three boys who have been standing at the window watching for your truck for the last 15 minutes. And when I got home, there were three boys very glad to see the taillights of their dad backing in the driveway. And it kind of made my day to know that, that they were excited to see me coming home. That is what Jesus returned in a small way. That's what the return of Christ is like. Are you standing at the window watching, waiting, anticipating, looking forward to that? Because if you are, there's not a doubt in my mind that that is what Jesus wants. I think it's the same feeling to a, to a measure of what a son looking forward to his father coming home from work is what we look forward to Jesus coming home, coming back to receive us. To the Christian whose heart is prepared and right before God, this is the most exciting event that will ever happen. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That blessed hope. I'm always interested with the word hope in this context. To me, hope is... The connotation it brings with us now is hope is something that we aren't, we aren't sure about, but we hope it's going to happen. That's not the hope that we have in Jesus. The hope is the most sure thing you can imagine. Looking for that blessed hope. We know it's going to happen. That blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. John 14.2 says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. These are simple promises that we've heard since we, were, since we could understand. There is a place being prepared for us. Are you preparing yourself to be there? Dwight Moody was traveling by boat on one of the Great Lakes when a very bad storm developed. The other passengers cowered in fear and eventually started a, an impromptu prayer meeting, but he did not join them. When later on he was asked why he didn't join the prayer meeting, he said, well, 
He said, I have a sister in Chicago where we're headed, and I have a sister in heaven. I don't care which one I see tonight. He was prepared. He was ready. He knew where he was going. He, had, he was anticipating that blessed hope. Many of us also have loved ones that we will see on that day. Parents, siblings, children, relatives, loved ones. If your heart is right on that day, there will be no pain and no tears. Jesus is coming again, and that's what we're living for. My mind was drawn to the song, What a beautiful day for the Lord to come again. It says, As I wake up in the morning of each day that passes by, and I listen to the sounds upon my ear, I can't help but keep a watch toward the eastern sky and wonder if the trumpet will be the next sound that I hear. All my earthly disappointments and my trials here below fade away as I remember his last words. He said he'd return and receive his children unto him, and I'm longing to look upon the face of my dear Lord. What a beautiful day for the Lord to come again. What a beautiful day for him to take his children home. Oh, how I long to see his face and to touch his nail-scarred hand. What a beautiful day for the Lord to come again. Is that your testimony tonight? That it's a beautiful day, a beautiful evening for the Lord to come again. Turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 19. This is a testimony of Job. Here in Job 19, verse 23. Job 19, 23. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Job didn't want this to be just remembered by a few people that he might have mentioned it to. He says, I want it to be written in a rock with a pen of iron, something that cannot be removed. This is how strongly he felt about it. He felt so strongly. He said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and I am going to see him someday. You know, whether that's a, a good thought or not a good thought to you, it's still the truth. Whether you're looking forward to it or not, you will meet Jesus someday. But if you're not ready to meet him, your perspective is totally different. It's dread and something we ignore if you're not looking forward to it you'll want to push it to the back of your mind and continue living this life here on earth as long as we can Luke 12:40 says be ye therefore ready also for the son of man cometh at an hour when ye think not I don't really have an answer for this but I I find it interesting, all the predictions that come 
of Jesus is going to come whenever it is. And there's people that have scientifically figured it out when he's going to return. And I wonder, I don't have an answer, but I wonder sometimes if God is up there looking down and saying, that would have been a good time, but they think they know I'm going to just pull it off a little bit or adjust it. I don't know what that is, but we don't know. We don't know when it is. Are you ready? There's a story that tells of three apprentice devils who were coming to earth to finish their apprenticeship. They were talking to Satan, the chief of the devils, about their plans to tempt and ruin mankind. The first one said, I'm going to go there and I'm going to tell them there is no God. And Satan said, that will not delude many, for they know there is a God. The second one said, I'm going to tell them that there's no hell. Satan answered and he said, you won't deceive many that way. Men know that there is a hell for sin. The third one said, I will tell men that there is no hurry. And Satan said, go and you will ruin men by the thousands. I think there's some truth to that. We tr- Satan tries to get it into our mind that there is no hurry. Two facts we have to rec- reckon with tonight. Everyone who is here tonight, everyone who ever was, has an appointment scheduled with God. The second fact is that our hearts and our lives will be revealed and will be judged at the time of that appointment. We can hide from people. We can hide our hearts from people. We don't need to be open before people. But there's no hiding from God. You have an appointment scheduled and it will happen. Matthew 25, 31 and 32 says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Titus 2 It says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And then it goes on, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Only those who are denying ungodliness are living holy, godly lives. First Corinthians 4, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring the light, bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. Jesus will bring the hidden things at judgment. He'll bring the hidden things in our hearts. He'll blow them wide open. Those things hidden, that no one on earth knows about. But they're keeping us from having that relationship with him. 
those things will come to light. I'm afraid there are many Christians living in a manufactured gray area of their Christian life. An area that is easy to ignore. An area that looks good on the surface but is lacking a relationship with Jesus. A life that has decided its own standards as to what is acceptable and is measured by those around him. And here are some characteristics of a life that is living in the gray. It sins lightly and casually. It's brazen or apathetic when confronted with sin. It trembles at the displeasure of man and swoons at their praise. It is unconcerned with being offensive to God. It is unconcerned with his pleasure. It says no one will know, no one is perfect, don't be so judgmental and legalistic. It complains at exhortation. It despises reproof and instruction. It refuses to submit. It seeks its own way. And it justifies itself. Those are some characteristics of a life that is living in the gray. But that gray area does not exist. It's something we make up for ourselves because we can't stand the thought of not being right with God. And so we, we make up this gray area. It doesn't exist. Matthew 7:22 says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You can do all the right things. You can do what God would want you to do. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it's not going to help you. Look at the list. It says, We prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils and done many wonderful works. But without a relationship with Jesus, he's going to say, Depart from me, I never knew you. We cannot live life like students who are copying off others' papers. Because when exam day comes, you will fail miserably. We live life like students that are copying off the papers of others, living on the coattails of some righteous person or a righteous church. If we don't have this on our own, our own relationship with Christ, we will fail on exam day. On earth, we often live trying to avoid consequences, and we may succeed in some way. But if you are not prepared to meet God, there are consequences for that one that you will never, ever be able to escape. Jonathan Edwards wrote a very charged sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and it says the wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher until an outlet is given. 
But the guilt of the sinner is also increasing, and each day more wrath is being stored up for the unrepentant. Vengeance has been withheld, but there is nothing but the pleasure of God holding back his wrath. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow is made ready on the string. The justice bends the arrow at your heart and, the, and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that have never passed under a great change of heart, by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all, the, all you that were never born again, and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light and life are in the hands of an angry God. I think there's some truth in that emotional appeal by Jonathan Edwards. But there's also truth in this. I get uneasy when we, when we just look and try to frighten people into salvation by the wrath of God. That is something to be reckoned with. It's true and it's sure. But at the same time, as long as the earth stands, that same God is holding his hand out with forgiveness available for you. It's easy to confuse it with the doctrine that Jesus died on the cross, therefore my sins are forgiven. I say this carefully, but that is not true. Jesus died on the cross making forgiveness available for you. His death did not forgive you. It made it available for you. The forgiveness is available for you to take. And that same God that is holding back his wrath, as long as the earth stands, is also holding out his hand with forgiveness available for you. But to be in the hands of an angry God is going to be a terrible place to be when he returns. Adam Clark says this, To fall into the hands of God is to fall under his displeasure and he who lives forever can punish forever how dreadful to have the displeasure of an eternal almighty being to rest on the soul forever but as of this moment that forgiveness is still there too we can avoid the wrath of God's judgment when we consider it though when we consider the wrath and the judgment of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God that's available to us, it needs to bring us to our knees or we haven't reckoned with it. We soak in so much about the love of God and how loving God is and He is. It can't, it can't be minimized. The mercy and the love of God but it is so easy it's so easy to be ready, to have my heart ready for that kind of a God. When that's all we focus on, it's easy to be ready for a God like that. But that's, half, that's only half of it. God is a God of judgment and of wrath. He, he tolerates no sin. When I set my life up beside 
God's holy standard. And I realize how far I fall short of his holy standard. When I realize the consequences of unrepented sin or glossed over sin, we don't appear so ready. And there's one reason for that, I believe. It comes from two words, compromise and apathy, that sneak into our lives. Judges 16, verse 16 through 19 says this, And it came to pass, when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him, so that his soul was vexed unto death, this is Samson and Delilah, that he told her all his heart, and said unto her, there hath, no, there hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he hath showed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought money in their hand, and she made him to sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. Great Comfort says this. He says, Many Christians today are weak because they have fallen asleep on the lap of the Delilah of the world and have had their strength snipped away by the sharp instruments of compromise and apathy. Many Christians have fallen asleep on the lap of the Delilah of the world and have had their strength snipped away by the sharp instruments of compromise and apathy. And those two words are what we build that gray area around. The most important preparation that you can make tonight is to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Turn to me, turn with me to First Peter. Peter gives us several reasons why we need to be prepared. First Peter chapter one, verse thirteen. There's three passages here in 1 Peter I'd like you to turn to that give a little bit of a different perspective, each one. 1 Peter 1.13 Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, two words here, be sober and anticipate. Turn a few pages to 1 Peter 4, verse 7. says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. So it, he tells us to be sober and anticipate. Be sober and watch. Now turn to 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. 
Young people, it's easy to think. We understand these verses about being sober and vigilant and watchful. But I'm a youth now. I will do that when I reach you fill in the blank. This is that's this was my way of thinking for far too long. I understood this. I understood that we need to be sober and watchful and vigilant. But that's for people that are on their own, living on their own, that don't have that are have left home. I don't know why I drew that line. It's for people that have grown up a little bit more. Or the worst excuse I've used at all is I'm no worse than any of my friends. And I would never say that to anybody, but that's deep inside. That is what I was thinking. Be sober, be vigilant, and be watchful. That soberness and watchfulness needs to start right now. The sooner you learn to walk soberly and to be watchful, the more heartache you will save yourself. As you learn to walk soberly and watchful, you don't need to live a life of regret. So what, what exactly does it mean to walk soberly? To walk soberly is not to be straight-laced and straight-faced. That's not what soberly means here. To walk soberly means to be balanced, to be temperate, to be self-controlled, sensible, disciplined, and an umbrella over all of that is just taking life seriously. That's what it means to walk soberly. To be disciplined, sensible, balanced, temperate. Paul told Titus in chapter 2, verse 6, Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Paul knew the tendencies of young people. That's why he told them. He said, exhort them. Exhort young people to be sober-minded. Adam Clark has some insight regarding soberness in young people. He says, sober-mindedness in a young man is a rare qualification, and they who have it not plunge into excesses and irregularities which in general sap the foundation of their constitution. And that's true. It's a rare qualification, and they who have it not plunge into excesses and irregularities which in general sap the, the foundation of their constitution. We're to be watchful. We're to be sober, and we're to be watchful. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Tonight, if you are child of God, if you are thinking about becoming a child of God, you are the devil's prey. And the prey that is not watchful will be caught. Satan is hard at work in the world all around us. We cannot doubt that fact at all. But Satan is hard at work inside these doors as well. It's not just in the world around us. And he will not, probably, will not tempt you to do something outright wrong. He may. 
but he may not. If he can keep our decisions within the church unwise and short-sighted, he's well-pleased. If he can keep the decisions of parents shallow and short-sighted, he's well-pleased. If he can keep the decisions of youth shallow and short-sighted, he's well-pleased. The devil held a great anniversary at which his emissaries were convened to report the results of their several missions. I let loose the wild beasts of the desert, said one, on a caravan of Christians, and their bones are now bleaching in the sands. What of that, said the devil? Their souls were all saved. For ten years, I tried to get a single Christian asleep, and I succeeded and left him so. Then the devil shouted in the night, stars of hell sang for joy. If he can get us to sleep, that's all he needs. He doesn't need to tempt us to do something outright wrong. But if he can get us to sleep, he is well pleased. First Thessalonians 5, the first six verses. Turn with me to that. First Thessalonians 5, 1 through 6. First Thessalonians 5, verse 1, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For one day shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as prevail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Let us therefore not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Those that are not watching are not prepared for the Lord's return. The life of a Christian must be taken seriously. It's not a life to be lived on a whim. Prayer, diligence, and watchfulness have to be real in your life. Or you are not prepared. G. Campbell Morgan said, To me, the second coming is the perpetual light in the path which makes the present bearable. I never lay my head on my pillow without thinking that, without thinking that maybe before the morning breaks, the final morning may have dawned. I never begin my work without thinking perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, 
without spot and blameless. And that's my prayer for you tonight. Be diligent that you may be found of him in peace. What does it do to your heart when you hear and you realize and it, it strikes you that Jesus is returning? I think we're going to have an invitation tonight. I don't know where all of you are with the Lord. Maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to you sometime throughout the week. Maybe you find yourself living in that non-existent gray area, hoping hoping you're ready for the Lord's return. When Jesus comes, there are no excuses going to be good enough to excuse you from judgment. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. If something in your life is not where it should be or it's not right with the Lord, we're going to sing two verses of an invitation hymn. And it doesn't matter what it is. If it's something little, if it's something big, that forgiveness of God, he's still holding it up to us. If there's something, I'd ask you to just stand where you are and I'll acknowledge you and then you can be seated and then at the close of the service, we can meet and someone will pray with you.